the old world was someone hacked my spreadsheet and got my data. Mm. The new world is someone hacked my embedded pacemaker and killed me. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to a special episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma. And on today's episode, I am very lucky to be talking with Bruce Schneier. Bruce is one of the world's foremost security experts and researchers, having authored hundreds of articles, essays, and papers, as well as over a dozen books. He's a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, He's a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he's a board member of organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Access Now, as well as the Tor Project. His latest book, Click Here to Kill Everybody, explores the existential threats that we've created by hyperconnecting our modern world and how governments and people can move to protect our future before it's too late. So on this important episode, Bruce talks with me about new kinds of threats to our physical security, who bears the cost of these risks in society, why breaches like Equifax are only just the beginning, and what meaningful policies could help us to prevent catastrophe if we move quickly. We're going to be doing more of these special episodes of Decentralize This going forward, where the focus moves away temporarily from the technologies being built and more towards the why of building them. Why is it so critical that we build the right things and scale them the right way? What about the world must we work to change? Bruce deeply understands why we must solve for security, and he's extremely effective at explaining not only the why, but a great deal of the how. So without any further introduction, I'm very pleased to feature Bruce Schneier. Bruce, thank you so much for appearing on Decentralize This. It is my absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for having me. It's taken a while to schedule. <laughs> they always do, but uh, this was a very important conversation and a very timely conversation, I feel like, that we have to have. So the way we always start every episode is, is by giving the audience a little bit of background. So personally, professionally, in your own words, who who are you? Who is Bruce Schneier? I'm a security technologist. I tend to work at the uh, intersection of security technology and people. And really, my career has been an endless series of generalizations. I started out in mathematical security cryptography and then generalized to computer security, network security, general security technology, the economics of security, the psychology of security, the sociology of security. And then really today I work in the public policy of security. My last two books were about uh, policy, and I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School, a uh, public policy school. I try to teach cybersecurity, tech, and law and policy. So I'm trying to figure out how these things work and, and how to make them better. I think it's a very noble cause, and obviously there's a lot of conversations going on right now about you know what what does it mean for something to be secure? How much should we care about security as individuals, as a society? Your, your most recent book published last year, the, the title is Click Here to Kill Everybody, which is scary enough. It's my, great. It's my, it's my first clickbait title ever. I hope you like it. I loved it. Um, of course, uh, then I read it and I was terrified all over again. Uh, the undertitle of that book is Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. 
So I'm personally very interested in the topics of security. Obviously, it's been the focus of your whole career. I think everybody on the planet is particularly interested in the topic of survival. So what made you decide to write that book? Like, why now? So I'm really writing about a change in the way we deal with computers, that computers are becoming physical, that they are collecting data about our environment, and they are doing stuff in our environment. And I think about drones or interconnected cars or refrigerators or thermostats or Roomba vacuum cleaners, that computers are now affecting the world in a direct physical manner. And that changes security because it's no longer about data. It's about things. It's about life. It's about property. And what I'm trying to write about is how this change affects how we deal with computer security. And that's really you know, what I'm driving towards. And that's a change that's happening now and will happen increasingly in the next two years. That computers are going to become more physical, more embedded, more part of our lives. That the notion that the internet is a something we go visit on our computers, on our phones, is becoming obsolete. It's more an embedded world we live in. And that's really the change that's happening now that made me write the book now. One of the major chapters in your book was titled, Risks Are Becoming Catastrophic. So I suppose that's part of the answer to why now that there's real like consequences that are more existential than just like some data was leaked somewhere like someone can see my browsing history versus like this has implications for, you know, the global financial markets or why large scale terrorist attacks. So, you know, I, I understand that, you know, this this is a very critical time, you know, and, and we've kind of done it to ourselves uh, by connecting everything in the world to the Internet. So. What types of attacks? Maybe we can start there. What kind of attacks on our data and our privacy should we be primarily concerned about today? And what are just some of the real world consequences of these attacks? So it's not really about our data and our privacy. That's the old world. The old world was someone hacked my spreadsheet and got my data. Mm. The new world is someone hacked my embedded pacemaker and killed me. So yes, we should be concerned about data about data privacy, data theft, all of those uh, sort of traditional fears. But we should also worry about actual physical consequences of attacks. Right? The, the, when I have a car, I'm certainly worried that someone will hack the car, turn on the Bluetooth microphone, and eavesdrop on my conversations, but I'm much more concerned that they'll disable the brakes. Right. You know, I'm concerned that someone hacks a hospital and downloads my private patient medical records. But I'd be way more alarmed if they changed my blood type. Mm. And these are the new style of attacks. I mean, the old risks aren't going away. We can talk about data privacy. But what's coming when you have computers affect the world in a direct physical manner are these real risks to life and property that have nothing to do with privacy. Right. And that's what's new. And that's because you know, all of these systems are computerized. You know, I'm, we're concerned about the security of our power plants, not because of privacy concerns, but because of blackouts. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to, <laughs> to to misread your work. Like, I, I know that you've written about both. I mean, I guess my position is like, if we couldn't even solve those issues when it was just data, right? When it was just entries in, in a spreadsheet somewhere, 
What, what makes you think that we're prepared to deal with any of these threats that, again, as you said, have a, have a physical component? Like you can turn off my pacemaker. We, we can like put, shut down entire cities. Well, at this point, I don't think we are prepared to deal with them. But I think we're more likely to deal with them mm. because when it was just data, it was very easy to say that you know Silicon Valley gets to do what it wants. That is very easy to have a neo-libertarian laissez-faire, don't regulate, because it's just about data. But that kind of thinking tends not to exist with dangerous technologies. Right? Medical devices are regulated. Automobiles are regulated. Cars are regulated. Power plants are regulated. Building safety is regulated. Right? So, so all of these traditional areas where we step in and say, look, government has a role here. Computers are moving into that area. So you know, it's not that we couldn't solve these problems with data, but that we chose not to. Right, that we decided that the uh, the engines of innovation were so important that we had to let you know, companies alone. And there was good reason for that. I mean, I'm not going to argue against that. But when you have dangerous technologies, it's harder to make that argument. Right. And and early in your book, you write, you know, software is poorly written because the market doesn't reward good quality software. You know, there's that there's that old saying of like good, cheap, fast, choose to. Right. And Facebook has this unofficial slash official motto of, you know, move fast and break things. And again, we're, we're talking about the data here. Facebook doesn't yet make and I and I and I emphasize the word yet, you know, large scale autonomous drones. Uh, so what is this something? Uh, here's one question I wanted to ask. Have markets always been this way? Has it always been this kind of good, cheap, fast, choose to? Or is there something specifically about the internet and software that makes it particularly enticing to cut corners on something like security? Well, a couple of things. It's, security actually is expensive with software because of the complexity. I mean, a whole lot of reasons. And with exceptions like the space shuttle, hmm. we just don't want to pay the two, three, four times it would cost to have secure software. So it's it's more expensive. Uh, the industry is is really very nascent. I mean, it's not like the car industry, which is decades and decades old, or pharmaceuticals. So, and that newness and the speed at which it developed meant there was a very strong argument saying, you know, don't waste time making the thing of quality because we're going to update it so fast, right? Mm. It'll be obsolete in five years. We have a new thing. Unlike you know seatbelts, you know which is technology that has been very well studied, and and you know is in all vehicles, but but really this is common to all industries, that you will only get as high quality a product as the customer understands enough to buy, and 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 that's key, right? That the customer has to understand it. So for pharmaceuticals, you know, the industry was selling snake oil, like literal snake oil, until the government stepped in and says, look, you can't do that, that the customers don't know enough to choose quality pharmaceuticals from snake oil. Mm -hmm. So we are going to regulate this industry. Now, until then, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of very poor quality drugs. Right. And some of it actually unhealthy, actually poison. So you know you do get this everywhere that the market will reward 
what people buy and what people buy isn't necessarily what's good. Yes, that that seems to be the case. And and again, I think maybe what's different about the the last maybe at least the last decade is we've managed to find a way to make software itself addicting so that once you get hooked well but it's it's, it's even i mean addicting that that's that's sort of unfair i mean yes there's addictive uh, software and a lot of bad things there but the software is actually phenomenally useful i mean you know i don't think we can say that our smartphone the only reason we have one is because it's addicting Smartphones have changed the world. Computers have changed the world. The internet has changed the world in so many positive ways. And these are actually amazingly good technologies. So, you know, in a lot of ways, security is around the edges. And another reason why it's gotten short shift over, over the past years and, and a few decades. And that's what's changing. That it's no longer going to be around the edges. Got it. And you've written, at least in this book or before, I can't remember, but I remember you writing security as a tax on the honest, right? That it's that it's actually, as you said, security is expensive. And this is something that we bear the cost of like at, at large, but like who, who right now is bearing the cost of security? You know, there's there's the cost of implementing security and then there's the cost of not implementing it correctly. So where where are all these costs being borne right now? And is is that a problem? But when, yes, and th these are the economic issues that makes market solutions fail in many cases. And it's the cost of security and the costs of insecurity. Mm -hmm. And some of them are borne by by individuals and companies. And, you know, if you are hacked, there is a cost to that. Uh, there is a PR cost. When you think of Equifax, right? Hacked about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every American's personal data was stolen. And they bore a cost. Now, it turned out not to be a very high cost. I mean, they were embarrassed in the media. They were holed in front of Congress. They had to say a bunch of things. But, you know, we're not Equifax's customers. We can't quit. We can't, like, fire them. Right. And in fact, the, they made a smarter economic move, not spending money on security and bearing the, uh, the costs of the hack. Right, they they were not regulated. Government didn't do anything to them, so it was pretty cheap for them. Now, some right, right. Sometimes the costs are borne by us. So the cost of the Equifax hack, you know, it, when the data is stolen, is to you and me if we are the victims of fraud. Right, that is a cost we bear individually. Uh, we cannot secure our systems. Right, we can't go and secure Equifax. So that that there's a disjoint there, right? That it's an externality to Equifax. Other times the costs are are direct, right? Banks, when they lose money, they lose money, right? right? And, and one of the reasons banks are so good at security because they often bear the direct costs of getting it wrong, in a way that Equifax does not. Mm -hmm. I think that's now, very sometimes, important. Right? Yeah, but these are all extremely critical in trying to figure out solutions. Right? Sometimes the costs are borne by society at large. So if you remember the Dyne botnet, the fall of 2016, I think, mm -hmm. these were insecurities and internet-connected routers and digital video recorders and webcams. So these were insecure devices. They were recruited into a botnet, and that botnet was used to attack a bunch of other sites. Now, you might have one of those DVRs that's a part of the botnet. You don't know. You don't care. 
you're not bearing the cost of the insecurity. The manufacturer of that, that DVR is not bearing the cost. The cost is being borne by kind of all of us because the internet is now less reliable. Right? So there again is an example hmm. where, the, where the, uh, the costs are diffuse. And following these threads, following who benefits, who pays, is extremely important in understanding the security and then how to fix it. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there's so much of this reflected in so many areas of society where it's like the tragedy of the commons or, you know, yes, the, the, that's, exa- that's exactly right. And, and it sounds like you're describing something similar to like when I talk about like vaccinations, right? It, it doesn't yes. take you know very many people failing to be vaccinated to create huge risks to society of a global pandemic. And, right. and, and, and that's a public hygiene problem. Yes. And there are a lot of these public hygiene problems in computer security as well. And would you say – so we'll get to talk about some of like the actual policy prescriptions because I think that's the most interesting part of your work in your book is like what can we actually do as a society and as governments. What's interesting to me is like, you know, again, education, education of the public, education of legislators. This is another cost. Who bears that cost? You know, who who chooses to fund these kinds of activities? Like who who funds when it's a public health issue, right? You know, we have – we have something set up where it's like, here's how you handle that level of hygiene. But what about, you know, security hygiene? Where where does the cost get borne? That's right. And, and again, you have to look at other, other industries to sort of see how this works, right? Who bears the cost of the Food and Drug Administration? Right. Who bears the cost of checking the safety of airplanes? I mean, those are, those are other similar areas with similar economics, and in general, society bears the cost, right? We bear the cost. You know, we pass it on to the industries and taxes. But, you know, we are the ones who make rules about airplane safety. I mean, together. Yeah, I, and I think yeah, airplane safety is a pretty critical field as well. You kind of want it to be good, yes. Yeah. And, it's, and it's also an area where as a consumer, you have no control and no visibility. I mean, I can't walk onto the plane and say – you know, I'm going to expect the maintenance record before I get on. Right. right? That just doesn't happen. That, that, that's, I mean, it, it's a joke when I say it. Right. right. As a consumer, I have no ability to see, understand, or affect airplane safety. Right. I mean, I have to rely on the government to say, yep, you know, all, all these planes, they're, they're, they're well-maintained. The pilots are well-trained and well-rested, right? The air traffic control system works well. Right. And you can, without thinking, get on the airplane. Right. And it also helps that we don't turn on the news and see reports of millions of airplanes falling from the sky on a weekly basis. So I, I guess, you know, having flown enough planes, you get that confidence. But, you know, I, I – well, well, but that's the measure that works. I mean, the fact that airplane, airplanes are the safest ways to fly, to travel. Right. I mean, people are afraid of flying, but I tell them that the taxi ride to the airport is the most dangerous part of their trip, <laughs> right? By a lot. Yeah, but that's not by accident, right? That's because we have all of these controls over over air travel. I don't think air travel travel was nearly as safe, you know, a hundred years ago when it was uh, a purely speculative endeavor where people were falling off cliffs trying to fly a plane. But then we didn't make millions of people fly planes every day. Right. It became a consumer technology. Yeah. So okay. Maybe right. It, it moved from an experimental, from an exp- from a uh, 
specialist technology to consumer technology. Right. And so back to your point that this is touching now every aspect of our lives, moving from, you know, just an issue of our data to our, our physical existence. Before we – the most interesting thing, like I said, is is the prescription. Like what now must we do? Before we move to that topic, I have one other one, which is I, I think this book was written or at least a great deal must have been written before some of 2018's biggest data-related scandals like Cambridge yes, Analytica, certainly. Marriott's data breach. So I, I have two questions. One is were you surprised – by any of these high-profile failures of the past year, or were you only surprised that it took this long for people to figure it out? And and my follow-up to that is, do you think that as a result, the broad public is starting to care more about these issues, or is it going to take something much worse happening before we start to see a real shift in the public attitude towards issues of security? Yeah, so I was not surprised. I mean, none of this is surprising. And I'm not even convinced that this year was last past year was worse than other years. Hmm. I mean, it depends what makes the news, but these data breaches are, are very, very common and happen all the time. Uh, here's a good question about what, whether the public will finally change their minds. And every year we have breaches that I look and say, this is the one. Right? Remember the Office of Personnel Management a few years ago? Hmm. Right? And pretty much every American elected official, every civil servant had their data stolen by China. Yeah. Right. That should have done it, and it didn't. Mm. <clears throat> right. Equifax. Every American had the data stolen by criminals. That should have done it, and it didn't. So why would Marriott do it? Right. Anyway, what's different? That's just my hotel. Right. I mean, these happen again and again and again. There was an IRS breach like a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And they're not even on the job right now. Right. Which which is so other cybersecurity problem. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it, it seems like public awareness is not going to be what does it. My fear is that because of, of this change in computers, that when it becomes life and property, that that will be the disaster, mm-hmm. that it will take that sort of disaster. But I'd rather it not. I don't want it to be in a disaster that kills people, that eventually gets people to notice. But, you know, that's that's sort of the direction we're headed. Right. I, I share your your outlook where it's like you want to not be too pessimistic because you don't want to see widespread chaos or harm. But at the same time, like having worked in the space and observed. What else is it going to be? Yeah. Right. Because because if it's just about data, it's just about data. And it's easy to say, you know, that's just data. Well, we're, if your book is part of making that connection for people that it's data now, but tomorrow it could be this, you know, may, maybe that's it. But as you're saying, like, I guess it's hard to break through the conversation to, to show people the, the clear uh, follow through arc from it's our data at risk to it's our lives at risk. Right. And I think that's it's going to sneak up on us. Mm. I, mean, I don't think we're fully apprised in that. In a lot of ways that that power plant security snuck up on mm. us. We really weren't aware of it till suddenly right, the Russians and Chinese are penetrating our power grid. Yep. And now we're all panicky. And, you know, with, with good reason. But, you know, that was kind of obvious. And we should have saw that coming. Right. Well, uh, you know, we, we have now the benefit of hindsight to, to be developing some of these uh, prescriptions now going forward. And I, and I know the focus of your work now at Harvard and, and some of the focus of the book is from the policy side. So when I read these thought pieces now, let's say in the New York Times or elsewhere, and they're like, it's time to act, someone should do something, and they're not prescriptive at all, 
I, I feel like maybe I'll get a better answer from you. What what can we do or who should be doing something? And let's let's maybe start on the policy side. What what should be done? Like, what are high level ideas? So, so this is hard. It's, it's something must be done. But what mm-hmm. is it? And I, again, look at other industries and what's missing in computer security and Internet safety is government mm-hmm. that we have been OK with a completely unregulated tech space because fundamentally it didn't matter. Right? It was just about right. data. And that's what's changed. So I think what has to change is that government needs to get involved, that we need actual regulation. Now, this is a very hard sell. And the internet was designed by these you know, libertarian, don't regulate me, you know, Silicon Valley bros, basically. Mm-hmm. And now I'm saying that, that those fun days are over. But it, it's going to take that kind of change. I mean, that really is what has to change. And, you know, once you realize it's government, there, you see there are lots of tools of government. There are, you know, flex, there are rigid rules like speed limits. There are flexible standards of, of safety. There are liabilities. There's all sorts of different ways that, that governments put, basically put their finger on the scales and affect the, the, the properties of the products and services we buy. Right? And, and but that that in a high level is is what we need to start thinking about. You know, what is it that government can do to solve all of these right the the economic issues, right the externalities, the the market failures mm. that we talked about earlier, right the fact that Equifax doesn't really care if they lose all our data because we're not their customers, right? Right, you know, but. <laughs> The only way to solve that is the government to step in and say, okay, Equifax, here are the new rules. If you want to stay in business, you must do these things. Do you think that when you say do these things and like what what are the consequences going to have to look like for companies? Are they going to have to be like, can we get away with just you using like purely economic consequences? Does somebody have to go to jail? Like what is it going to take? So I don't know. It's, it's a good question. You know, I mean, we we rarely jail uh, executives of companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually it's it's we impose costs, and that makes sense, right? Equifax will be rational. Right. They'll look at the cost of complying, the cost of not complying, and they'll pick the cheaper. Right. Right. Just like an automobile comp- automobile company does the same thing. Right. Well, Equifax is an interesting example because they're not, you know, again, they're not putting anybody's lives at risk. But maybe I'll take the example of like uh, the California wildfires. And the failure of like the utilities to properly secure uh, the wires, which now they're saying caused to some extent the the wildfires, which had real costs in terms of lives as well as you know homes and and the forest itself. So you know who's responsible there? Is that like we we jail people for murder, obviously. So if there's if there's an actual cost, as you're saying, going forward of of life. Should should these kinds of things be on the table for us beyond just economics? You know, for, I mean, personally, I think that nothing will motivate a CEO more than the threat of jail time. Hmm. Right? They'll take a, they'll take a financial risk in a way they won't take a physical risk. Right. But that's uh, that's very severe. And I don't know if we're ready to do that. But but certainly, I think that makes sense in some circumstances. Uh, in the Volkswagen hacking case, right? Executives went to jail. Right. 
right? So there's an example where we actually held individuals personally liable for the decisions they made and the things they did. Right. Right. That is an exception. That's a very rare thing. But yes, it is, it is incredibly motivating. So when you have actual malice, I mean, but it's worth going into the other industries. Are there times that we've jailed pharmaceutical executives for knowingly selling poison? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. Mm. But it's worth knowing the answer. Well, Theranos, there might be jail time, you know, but yeah, that's more like fraud. Yeah, see, but, and fraud generally has financial penalties. Right. Yeah, this is going well beyond fraud, right? Like I, again, I'm focusing on the on what you're writing about, which is that there there is actual the the threat of loss of life resulting from the fact that we've plugged everything into everything else, and that and that is a problem. So, what are, are you proposing? Maybe like this be a new government agency that would provide some of this oversight, and if so, what might that look like? So, don't, again, don't know. That that's another interesting question of how to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there are certain commonalities between all computers, but you know, if everything's becoming a computer, it makes no sense for there to be one agency to handle cars and planes and toys and appliances and power plants, even though it's the same Intel microprocessor. And right? so, I think we definitely need the topical expertise, but we also need broad cross-topic expertise. Mm. And we have some models for that. I'm not sure how it would work. You know, robotics. There's a case that robotics is different enough that needs its own agency, mm. like cars. And, you know, when I talk about some of these regulations, there's a very – there's a caricature in Silicon Valley that regulations are, are only rules that you must obey. Mm -hmm. Right, you must have an airbag in your car. It must look like this. But in fact, most regulations are far more flexible, and most liability is far more flexible. Mm. That there's partial liabilities. There's the notion that the uh, the thing that happened was unforeseen, and you couldn't protect against it. So you know, this is not going to destroy the industry in any way, but it does mean that companies have to have more responsibility for for the products they sell. Right. What what might be something like on the regulation side? I, I'm not asking you to commit to any kind of regulation in particular, but might what might be some kind of rule for this new world that you're that you're saying we're moving into? Any kind of rule that might better like put the responsible party, like put the responsibility on them. Like what, what, how how might a regulation do this? So California just passed an Internet of Things. Security law, mm -hmm. uh, first in the nation. Uh, they have a very uh, – there's one of the provisions, very simple, is that you can't have a default password. Hmm. Right? You can't build a device where every instance has the same default password. It's bad security. It's stupid. Stop doing it. Right. right? Very simple rule. Now, there – that, that's a very easy prescriptive rule. You could also imagine a regulation that says – Companies must take due care with data about their users and customers. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very flexible rule because what does due care mean? Well, it means all sorts of different things, right? And regulatory agencies and courts figure it out and it changes. And so there are just two examples of ways you can impose some kind of order onto this space. Right. 
Now, I guess one of the issues with regulation as a solution is this idea that gets spoken about that you write about of surveillance capitalism being a very enticing model to everybody from advertisers to the government themselves. So how do we, you know, since there's so much incentive to embrace surveillance capitalism, if you are a legislator, how, how can we start getting around that to, to make sure we actually get these regulations in place? I think this is much harder. That surveillance capitalism is an enormous wealth creation engine for society, mm-hmm. right? Googles and Microsofts and Facebooks and Amazons. And turning it off is going to be difficult. Right. I think we are, we are, we will turn it off eventually. That it really feels like an immoral business model to me. And I think, you know, fast forward 30 years, we'll look back at surveillance capitalism like we looked at, you know, child labor hmm. as, as something, wow, we used to do that. How awful of us. Right. And, but it's going to take a, a big change. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. That, you know, right now, our data is going to be collected. We're going to be spied on. So, you know, for near term, we, I think we have to focus more on forcing companies to better secure that data right. than prohibiting them from collecting it or using it. In your personal opinion, do you think realistically the United States is going to take the lead on this? And if not, where should we be looking for somebody to be actually taking the lead on this? I don't. I mean, the U.S. government is dysfunctional in so many ways, and we have so many important, more important issues than this. I can't imagine us taking the lead. I look in two places where there's real work happening. Uh, one is Europe, mm-hmm. right? The European Union is the regulatory superpower on the planet, and they passed comprehensive privacy laws a year and a half ago that just came into force a few months ago, and they're looking at security as well. They're going to be doing a lot, and then and then the states. I mentioned California's IoT security law. Really, California, Massachusetts, and New York in particular mm-hmm. are doing a lot of work here, and they will continue to. So that's where I think you're going to see a lot of the uh, the innovation happening. But the U.S. government will follow. We always do. It just takes us a while. What about you know China or somebody like any of these Asian markets? Are any of them taking this seriously? I mean, China's taking surveillance very seriously, uh, not to prevent it, but to do it. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the public safety w- is something that transcends uh, political models, mm-hmm. right? That that yes, China might want to spy on its citizens, but doesn't actually want to kill them. Hmm. So you know, we could see uh, public safety laws coming out of of China. Again, I don't think so. Right. I think it's really the EU and the. Uh, the, the bigger, more powerful states in the United States. That makes sense. Uh, I guess my my analogy might be for you know climate change or global warming. Not to you know pivot to another politically charged topic, but just as an example of something where even if certain entities are taking the lead on regulation, you know, is there really impact on security globally if only a few people? Or, or I should say a few uh, countries or states are taking the lead on this or does it have to be like everybody on earth is taking meaningful step towards this to see a change in, in, the, in the risk model, in the chances that something terrible will happen? Well, this is where software is different than hardware. Mm-hmm. So take climate change. Right? The car you buy in the United States is not the same car you buy in Mexico. Right? Environmental laws are different. 
manufacturers tune their engines to the local markets. Right? The car you buy in California might not be the car you buy in another state. But software doesn't work that way. Right? California just passed a law saying no more default passwords. Manufacturers will change their software to comply with the law, but they're not going to sell two versions of the product, one for California, one for everybody else. That makes no sense. That's too expensive. Hmm. Right? So everybody in the world will benefit from that California law. So because of the way software is right once sell everywhere, with good regulations in a large enough market that you can't ignore affect the entire world. I mean, there's a lot of companies that are implementing the new European data privacy law, GDPR, globally because mm -hmm. it's easier, right? It's easier to do it globally than to figure out where to do it and where not to. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that same thing more so with, with software and safety. That's honestly the most optimistic thing I've heard in a while is the idea that we actually can do something at a more local level that can have global impact and that's motivating versus thinking like no matter what we do somebody somewhere you know is 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 going to screw this up for everybody else the idea that you know whereas the threats exist on a small scale you know like any individual unsecured device can be weaponized uh the same works if we're trying to make impact globally that it can start small and scale but it does work the other way too you know no matter no matter how good the US or European laws are they will still be cheap, insecure IoT devices being imported from you know, countries that we have no uh, way to affect. Right. Right. But, but it'll, it'll probably be much lessened. I mean, just like in the United States, we do have a, pro do have a problem with mail order pharmaceuticals that don't pass US law being sent from China and Malaysia and other Asian countries, right? That is still a problem, but it's a much smaller problem than if those. Uh, pharmaceuticals were available at the drugstores. Right. So to wrap up, we've spoken now quite a bit about you know the threats that we're facing, the role that policy and regulation can play as a solution. I think what a lot of people listening are going to be asking is, I don't work in government, you know, so what can I do as an academic? What can I do as an entrepreneur? What can I do as somebody who already works at a Google or a Facebook? What can I do? And just like, what can the average person do? You know, anybody who's survival can be impacted by all these risks you've identified, which is really anyone, you know, what else can they do at an individual level? Now, unfortunately, a lot of the answer is nothing because, you know, we have no control over a lot of these devices. Like what can I do to affect Gmail security? Nothing. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of power at the policy level. You know, we, need to, we need to make this a political issue. We need to make this something that we care about and therefore our policymakers care about. That as long as this is not an issue, and it wasn't an issue in the last election, I mean, nobody campaigned on cybersecurity, then it, it's easy to ignore the, uh, the regulatory imperatives. If this becomes an issue, then, uh, then we are sort of more likely to, uh, to be able to, uh, to solve this. So hopefully individuals collectively can – put pressure politically uh, in their own jurisdictions maybe to, to move us closer to implementing policies that can save us uh, hopefully from some of these inevitable risks that we're going to be facing. Is there, is there any kind of organization that, that you think is doing good work in this area that individuals can involve themselves with? Yeah, you know, there's a lot. You know, EFF, EPIC, 
Access Now. I mean, these are all organizations that are sort of pushing public policy. A lot of organizations looking at AI and mm-hmm. fairness and security and safety. So there's a lot of work being done. It, it really is just doesn't risen to the level of a political issue. And it has to. I mean, we have a lot of, of tech we can bring to bear in this problem. I mean, the issue is that there's no market for the tech because companies are now incented not to buy the tech and take the chance. I mean, that's what we have to change. Well, Bruce, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think you've managed to balance the necessity of action uh, with the, you know, the realism of like, what can we actually do in effect, while still having this optimistic take of there is something that we can do and believing that we can do something before we see these threats play out at a large scale. Because you and I both agree, harm, harm, for the human is bad. We, right. we'd, we'd like to avoid it. Um, killer robots are not our friend. That could be the next book, and I would and I would read it, assuming that I'm still alive and haven't been killed by a robot. So, I, I look forward to reading more of of your blog in particular. Um, maybe for the audience, you, you can say like where they can find more of your work. You know, all of my stuff is on my website, uh, Schneier.com. S C H N E I E R. Presumably, you'll you'll have it on the uh, on the webpage, mm-hmm. and that's where my books and my essays and all of my writings are. Great. I will absolutely add the links to the episode description. Everybody can follow up and read more of this work for themselves, get inspired, get involved, and hopefully, hopefully, contribute in some way to change. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to reading more of your work soon. Thank you. <laughs>